Hello. Thanks for coming out and joining us today. I'm David Richardson. I lead our collection of our serverless offerings. And like my colleagues Deepak and Ken, I've been lucky to be a member of the AWS team for, for quite a while now. So we were talking about this, and we thought we would try something new today. We thought we would share a little bit of our experiences at Amazon and about how we think Amazon goes about building software. So uh, give us feedback after it's over. Let us know if, if this was something that was helpful. Um, I joined the company in January 2006 in the infrastructure and networking group. That was a little bit before AWS launched. And I've always been a software person, so once I joined the company, I started looking around and trying to get a sense of how Amazon went about building software. And what I quickly noticed was the company had a very different approach from many other companies. And it was clearly a conscious decision because it really touched many, many parts of, of the business. And it was obvious that the goal of this way of building software was to drive innovation. In particular, a type of innovation that lets you do lots and lots of little experiments across a very broad part of the business. Now, it hadn't always been that way. Um, in the early days of the company, uh, as I started to get to know some of the older software engineers, there had been one giant C++ hairball uh, that was called Obidos and one giant database, relational database, called ACB, Amazon.com Books. And as you can imagine, that was definitely not an agile architecture. Um, it meant that, uh, you know, and, and by the time I joined, there were many, many products beyond just books. If you wanted to add a new type of product, say digital goods, or a new physical product like CDs or housewares, you had to edit the same stuff that was also supporting the existing well-established uh, bookstore. And so that was a high-risk environment, something that making changes to um, really you know, could, could risk the business. And that's not great for driving innovation. So sometime in the early 2000s, the company started moving to what today we would call microservices. Back then, it was called service-oriented architecture. Now, you may have heard that Amazon's kind of a writing-oriented culture. Um, unfortunately, it turns out not a lot was written down about that style of software. Um, so I was really excited later that year, I think it was in June 2006, the uh, Association for Computing Machinery, ACM, published an interview with Werner Vogels about Amazon's approach to, to building software. So that's how I started to learn about Amazon's approach. And, and you could tell uh, that it was not just a technology approach. It was uh, a way to be able to combine um, you know, technology, architectural decisions, but also organization design patterns and an infrastructure that could support building in that way, but most importantly, with a, with a culture, with, with a, a leadership approach. And so, um, you know, the company started moving to that uh, in, in the 2000s. And um, uh, it started to take an approach where we would break down uh, components of the architecture into very small services, where the idea is a microservice would just be responsible for one thing, because that could let you kind of move more rapidly, because you could better understand the changes you were making. And this was also related to a way to organize teams, to build teams. And we call that two pizza teams, where the idea is you can give a team a charter, ask them to own a problem, where the team's no bigger than you know, about two pizzas uh, to feed them. 
And these teams have uh, some strong properties. The first is ownership. Um, and, and I'm a Midwesterner, I really like this. It's one of my favorite leadership principles because I think you just gotta be responsible for stuff. And so the idea was let's have teams be able to make decisions but then also be responsible for the results of those decisions to, to be accountable. Uh, these days, I think uh, a lot of people would call this DevOps, where you know, an engineering team is responsible for designing, for developing, and for operating services. I, I just call it ownership. And so that was a key aspect of these two pizza teams, where the idea was you could drive focused innovation. You could have an idea, you could spin up a team, ask them to go experiment and to figure out, you know, is, does this idea have some legs? Are we gonna get some good results out of it? Can we make some improvements on behalf of customers? And so they could go and, and build the microservice that, that would drive that and have the set of technical infrastructure to support it. So I think that this type of microservices approach is a natural fit for modern microservices that are built in a serverless way. Our goal with serverless is to really radically reduce the amount of infrastructure you have to manage so you can really just focus on business logic without having to, to worry about how to compose a lot of these pieces together. So we're gonna talk today about some common elements of these. I'm gonna talk about some architecture patterns that we see work well uh, for these types of microservices and the infrastructure that supports it. Deepak is gonna talk about the operational model of, of running these sorts of systems, and Ken is gonna talk about how you actually build and deliver the software that makes these up. Now, as I go through these, these architecture patterns, please keep in mind um, the, the infrastructure, the software services that are there to support it, because the idea is if you build in this way, the services from AWS are, are made to work well together in those patterns and should reduce the amount of, of non-business logic that, that you have to work on. Now, I think innovation requires change. And the easiest kind of innovation to drive is lots of incremental change, lots of experiments. Um, that's much easier to do than to wait until you make one huge change um, because you can just get more, more iterations. You can learn faster by doing more of those. And that's where a microservices approach plays well. So you can iterate on each of those microservices at whatever pace of innovation you wanna drive. And you can have teams that also can, can be staffed appropriately for the work that you wanna do. Now those of you with a software engineering background may be thinking this, this sounds a lot like Conway's Law. And Conway's Law is an idea where your, your org design and your technical architecture wind up looking a lot like each other. And that's because really they're both about communication. If you think about what a team, what an organization has to do to make a decision, well, they have to communicate with each other. And the larger the, the team is, the larger the organization is, the harder it is to make a decision. You know, there's just a lot of communication that has to happen. And similarly, one of the key aspects of a technical architecture is how you compose systems together. You know, how you can reduce the amount of knowledge an engineer has to have to, to make one decision. So I think a microservices approach is really Conway's law. It's really how can you have an organization that can make decisions very rapidly and have a technical 
infrastructure and a set of you know, technical design patterns that can support that. So there are lots of different ways to, to build microservices. And we think there are kind of three key patterns that, that work well, especially in, in a serverless way. And so I'm going to talk about those. You know, the first really are kind of API-driven request response applications. And I think of APIs as the front door to microservices. Actually, inside of AWS, when we talk about two pizza teams, we often talk about a hardened API as a requirement of, of a team. So we even think about APIs at a team level. And that goes to that organizing practice of the API is the promise they make to their colleagues in the rest of the company, and that shouldn't change very often. But behind the scenes, we want them to be able to innovate as rapidly as possible, um, to be able to, to change the implementation um, in whatever way makes sense for the business. And so that API, that front door to the microservice, lets them do that. Now, we've built a lot of microservices as part of building out AWS. And so we've seen that there are some very common patterns that show up you know, truly just in the management of these APIs, not necessarily in the API itself, but in how you go about building and operating and managing APIs. And we've tried to provide those capabilities for developers in API Gateway, where the idea is you know, we can take those lessons learned and instead of every new microservice having to re-implement a well-mannered API, API Gateway can provide a lot of those capabilities. So it often starts with authentication so that you can control which customers or other microservices can use the API. And API Gateway is well integrated with Cognito and with identity and access management. There's also usually an aspect of resource control, and so API Gateway provides throttling. There's always some, some insights, some measurement and monitoring you have to do with your API. And so API Gateway has built-in support for X-Ray and CloudWatch and, and CloudTrail so that you can manage and monitor your API. But oftentimes, um, the API doesn't live in isolation. It lives in a network. And so you also have to have some controls about, call it network reachability. Um, what network environment can your clients be in? What network environment are your backends in? And so API Gateway has kind of a full matrix of that. The front end, the, the front door to those APIs can be out on the public internet. Um, it can be regional. It can be in a VPC. Um, similarly, the back end can be um, public backends, can be in a VPC. And you can even have different VPCs between the client side and the back side. And, um, it turns out you can also use Direct Connect and our VPN offerings, so the back end might not even be in the cloud. It could be uh, on-premise and reached um, through, through those networking offerings, but still managed and appear inside the cloud. Now, if you went to Werner's keynote earlier today, you probably heard that we're launching WebSockets uh, later in December, and I'm really curious to see how customers are going to use this. If you think about that matrix of network reachability, we're kind of doing the same with, with statefulness. Um, you know, with WebSockets, you have these long-lived stateful connections. Um, and yet, with API Gateway, you can implement those in a short-lived serverless fashion. So you can have you know, WebSockets that live for minutes, hours, days, um, and yet use something like Lambda to just quickly uh, fire up compute that will respond to the actual uh, requests across WebSockets. 
So we're really looking forward to see how people can um, expand the capabilities they have in traditional request-reply microservices now to long-lived stateful web sockets, um, but still keep building in a serverless way. Now, if you really get into building microservices with lots of APIs, you may find that it's not enough to manage each API individually. That paper that I mentioned I enjoyed reading back in 2006 from Werner about how Amazon went about building software, he pointed out that even back then, if you visited an Amazon.com webpage, uh, behind the scenes, hundreds of microservices were actually firing off to build that single page. And so these environments can get quite large. And so we've now launched AppMesh as a way to be able to discover um, and communicate with the various APIs that, and microservices that might make up your application. So again, in this same pattern of we want infrastructure support that makes it easy for your developers to use simple DNS names, SDKs, or APIs to discover and connect to the APIs that make up your microservice. And related to that, um, we know that sometimes you have to manage network communication faults or software updates and things like that. So we've also launched AWS App Mesh so that you can, again, have a managed infrastructure that we provide for you that you can use to, to deal with these network conditions. And it can be used across multiple clusters, across multiple orchestration systems, and even across multiple VPCs. So that, that's kind of you know, design pattern number one, request reply driven um, uh, microservices. The, the second common pattern is uh, event driven architectures. And in a way, this is kind of a back to the future design pattern. You know, back in the 1980s, many enterprises started moving to message oriented middleware or enterprise integration patterns, um, really for the same reasons that they're super valuable today in, in modern serverless architectures because they have this great decoupling capability. They make it really easy for you to have lots of, of different systems that all interact in kind of a reactive way with each other via events. And so we have a set of infrastructure that we provide to, to help you build in this way. We have our cloud native uh, queuing and notification service that have massive scalability deep integration with the rest of AWS, and very tight integration with, with Lambda in particular to make it easy to build kind of a combination of, of events and compute that react to each other. And it turns out, I don't know how many people know this, but every time you use an AWS service, you can also generate an event in our service called CloudWatch Events. So these combined make it easy for you to build loosely coupled systems where you can have some action that triggers an event, that you know, has some compute that may trigger some more events and, and so on. So it makes it very easy to evolve an architecture. The third major design pattern we see people using are, are data stream oriented ones. Um, and and you know, these can be what people will call an event sourcing pattern, it can be a data flow pattern, but basically where instead of events and messages, the key connective tissue through your application are data streams. And here we provide support through DynamoDB streams, which is a, a really neat way to be able to, as you drive changes in your DynamoDB tables, you, know, you can have a stream that can then drive computational activities or, or other things uh, as part of your architecture. Or you can use Kinesis in, in a same sort of way, you know, more generically 
however you want to start those data streams. And in that same spirit of we want to make it easy to use these systems together, uh, right before reInvent, we launched enhanced integration between Lambda and Kinesis data streams, which really is just to make it even easier for these to scale up and down with the needs of your business without you needing to do any of the work, and to make it you know, more performant. Now, one thing that you've probably seen across all three of these, these design patterns is it's a lot of systems working together. I think that is a big change from more traditional um, uh, monolithic architectures where you're now going to find you have a mixture of, of an event or a data stream or an API and some compute and usually some persistent storage together. And so another family of tools that we provide uh, is, is something to make it easier to manage that coordination together. So we have a service we call Step Functions, and its sole purpose is to make it easy for your components to work with each other to manage the workflow through those. And so earlier today, we enhanced that with integrations to many more AWS services. Um, and you know, this is something that you could have done before, even with Step Functions. You could have written a little bit of, of code that would be responsible for starting a job, checking to see if that job was done, maybe retrying it, and then eventually moving on. Um, but now, with these enhanced integrations, you can just basically say to Step Functions what you want the workflow to be, and it will manage all of that. Um, so the idea is, let's keep simplifying the ability to build these API-driven or event-driven or data flow-driven applications without needing to focus a lot on the infrastructure. Now, one of my favorite sayings from the early days of the web was um, uh, small pieces loosely joined. And this, this was an attempt to you know, try to define some of what made the web so magical, so uh, able to grow so rapidly and with such diversity. And I think it applies very well to these sorts of, of innovative, fast-moving architectures, that if you can take this same kind of approach to innovation, where you can do lots of incremental innovation, lots of, of experiments um, via a, a more loosely coupled system rather than a big, tight monolithic system, you're just going to be able to innovate and, and experiment faster. And so small architect you know, architectures of small components that are loosely joined through things like APIs or events or, or data flows are going to make it easier to, to grow like the web compared to large monolithic applications and the big teams that's required to, to own and drive those. So that's a little bit about three architectural patterns that we, that we believe you know, can, can help drive innovation. And now Deepak's going to talk with you about how, how to operate these sorts of systems. Thanks, David. Thanks. And thank you, everybody, for being here. I know it's uh, Thursday after a few pub crawls, lots of keynotes. Uh, there's still one more day to go. Um, so David talked a lot about how architectural patterns are changing as we deploy microservices and more loosely coupled architectures in the cloud. One of the lessons we've learned at Amazon, and perhaps even more so with, through our customers, as they've adopted these practices and have started deploying them into AWS, is how do we operate our infrastructure? How do we operate, help, op help them operate their services with these patterns? And I'm going to try and go through some of those lessons and some of the learnings over the last decade or two of running infrastructure as loosely, you know, loosely coupled services, not just in AWS, but in general. 
So one of the first questions you see, in fact, every time microservices are discussed in a place like Hacker News, I'm pretty much the top post on that uh, thread will be, microservices are too complicated, there's so many things to manage. In a sense, they're true, but it also has to do with how you think about your organization and how you operate your services. If you have lots of small teams where each team has discrete and distinct ownership of a small piece of that puzzle, they can operate that, they can build it, they can run it, and that's the part that they are responsible for. But what you also need as you do that is starting to build monitoring tools, observability, system management tools that help you get and corral the greater sense of the world. And a lot of what we've learned over the last few years and what you've seen us launch and add is how do we live in a world where people are moving much faster, where there are lots more teams and there's lots more systems, lots more small services as part of a larger system. One thing that's evolved quite a bit over the last few years is how we think about shared responsibility. If you've been at reInvent before, if you've been anywhere near AWS people, you've heard us talk about shared responsibility and the shared responsibility model. What it really means is if you could draw a simple box, there's a line somewhere in that box that says the part above that line is the customer's responsibility, and the part below that line is AWS's responsibility. The question then becomes, where is this line drawn? We give you lots of ways to draw that line. Uh, let's talk about databases. You could run your own database on EC2. In fact, a lot of customers do so. If you do that, you're responsible for running that database. You're responsible for patching that operating system. You're responsible for figuring out upgrades. How do you make it available? How do you scale it? We give you tools like auto-scaling that help you do that. We'll give you backup tools. We give you three availability zones in, many, in most of our regions. But the responsibility and decision-making is still yours. You can get one step further. You could use something like RDS. RDS takes care of the database management part of it, but you're still running your application yourself. There is still some reasoning around how that database runs. You have to choose whether you want to run multi-AZ RDS or single-AZ RDS. Those are, again, decisions you need to make. Or you could go all the way over to this side where you're running something like Aurora, where it's MySQL or Postgres compliant, but the storage infrastructure, the availability of the storage infrastructure, you don't have to think about, okay, do I now need to run a multi-AZ database? It's built in for you. Or you could go, go the extreme sense and run something like DynamoDB, where you have to make a decision on whether you want to move from a relational system to a key value store. And especially with some of the features that we announced with DynamoDB at this reInvent, the operability of that system, that line of responsibility has gone to a place where you are responsible for less and less, and AWS is responsible for more and more. Our goal in the end is to give you those choices, but continue to deliver features and capabilities where the responsibility part of that box heads more and more into the AWS side so that all of you can focus more on building the business logic and the business value for your companies. Uh, there are, you know, you, I've heard people say, people I know, that you know, any time that in a company that they are spending time corralling infrastructure and building scaffolding, it's time that they're not generating value for the company. And our goal is to try and help you make that less and less. There's been one interesting trend. Many, many, many years ago, there was a service that was launched called EC2. Uh, what EC2 did, and the, one of the big changes that it introduced was it took the concept of a server and put an API around it. You could suddenly start it up when you wanted, shut it down when you wanted. It, to use an analogy, which as someone from India has always been weird, you took your servers from being pets to being cattle. You don't like killing cattle in India. 
Uh, just don't use the analogy there. Anyway, uh, but I'll use it because I'm here. Uh, so your server went, used to be a pet. You nurtured it. You watered it at night. You may have made offerings to it, especially if it was a really expensive big iron server. But now you could shut it down when you wanted. In fact, when EC2 got launched, before I was at Amazon, one of the first things I did was launch about 20 instances, which is exactly the instance limit that EC2 gave, gives you by default, and shut it down about four hours later. It was kind of awesome. Um, but something happened. We built infrastructure around this to make it easier to operate all of our infrastructure. You added things like auto-scaling, where suddenly adding that second server became very easy too. Your server was still, a, was still cattle, where you know, when, you're, when you had no work to do, it went away. Then people started running more sophisticated applications on those, uh, on those servers. You started adding uh, systems like Zookeeper or a state management system, because now what you wanted to do was, I have this pool of resources. I want my jobs to land somewhere in that pool of resources, but you needed something to manage that pool of resources and have control over it. Along the way, containers came up. Container orchestration is awesome. I spend all day thinking about it. But they also made the cluster a thing. The cluster suddenly became your pet. Uh, if you look at how most uh, container orchestration systems work, every cluster has a data store. Every cluster has a leader node, which you now have to think about. Should this node be running in three AZs? How should I manage my data store? Should I back it up? How do I back it up? What happens if one AZ goes down and there's a write going on at that time? Those are things that, over time, cloud providers like us provide managed services like EKS that take care of that part for you. But you still have to reason about the instances you're selecting, what applications run in which cluster, whether you should multi-tenant it at all, what's the operational model around it. It's almost like now people are praying to the cluster, giving it food, giving it water, and nurturing it. Uh, it's fine. It works really well. But I think it breaks some of the operational wins that we got when we went from servers getting APIs. And the question is, how can we get away from the cluster becoming something that comes in the way? You've already heard David talk about serverless. And that is one of the big, big things that we've learned is, especially even within Amazon, is the less infrastructure you have to provision, the less infrastructure you have to reason about, the more scaling decisions are made on your behalf, the better it is. With serverless, you also pay for value. You're paying for some unit of consumption, whether it's a function, whether it's a task. Uh, in the case of DynamoDB, the data in your table, the more automated it gets and the less you reason about the capacity part of it, it's awesome. And then availability and security should be part of that system. Those are not things that you bolt on or have to think about. You should just get them uh, by default. So at AWS, and quite honestly, you're missing a bunch of things on this. Uh, it spans many, many different categories of services, uh, everything from integration, from data stores to compute. I'm going to talk about compute today. Um, so on the compute side, we have two serverless offerings. The first one, and you heard a little bit about that, is Lambda. For the one person in this room who may not know what Lambda is, you define a unit of code as a function. You give it a trigger. When the trigger hits, something happens. As someone who has built services on top of Lambda, the fact that you can add some new piece of logic, you have a new routing service that you want to add, or there's an API that you want to add that uh, takes care of a certain action, the fact that you can quickly do it in a Lambda function, deploy it, define the trigger that's going to make it active, and get it running without having to worry about provisioning, without having to worry about what the operational model should be, is pretty liberating. And you've seen all the capabilities that have been added to Lambda, both by AWS and our customer base over the last several years, uh, the four years since it got announced. 
there is another class of applications where you may want to have a little more control and say over how networks are architected, how services communicate with each other, what your packaging should look like. Uh, in there, your unit of, unit of work goes from being a piece of code to potentially being a set of container images that you've defined and stored in a registry. You can define some networking, but you don't want to think about how you take that containerized bundle and figure out where in some cluster you're going to launch it and start thinking about what a cluster should look like. In an ideal world, you should be able to define that and just deploy it. And uh, that's what, what, what AWS Fargate is. And it's typically used for long-running services, but also for cron jobs. Uh, it helps you bring existing code over. You don't need to completely rethink your architectural and programming model. But the big part is it takes that pet, which was a cluster, it doesn't make it cattle. It actually just makes it disappear, uh, other than just being an object in, uh, on your dashboard. And essentially, what you now have is a complete, this is a re uh, recap of what I talked about with the databases. But in the compute space, you have a spectrum of where that line of shared responsibility comes. You can start off with EC2, where you get to build what you want to build. You even get bare metal EC2 instances now. If you wanted to slap on a hypervisor, you could do that all the way up to Lambda, where all you're reasoning about is your, is, is your application code. And I think as our customers have found, as many of you have found, that's become uh, very empowering. Now, cool, we've taken a lot of the operational responsibility of running infrastructure away. But what happens next? You still have to develop code. That becomes an interesting roadblock. So one of the areas we focused over the last few years is to make development much, much, much easier for Lambda. Lambda today is serving trillions of requests every month for you know, hundreds of thousands of, act of active developers. So as more and more people adopt it, you go from the early adopters who are happy tinkering around, figuring out what to do, to more people who just want to get things done. And you want to reduce the barrier for them. So um, some of the new things that we've done, and I'll talk about this one today, uh, and you, if you were in Werner's keynote, you heard us talk about it, is Lambda Layers. Now, functions can share code. You can reference a piece of code in another function. You don't have to write something new completely. It's almost, in some way, that's similar to how uh, layers in a container image are stored, and you can reference them and build on top of it. Uh, it se promotes separation of responsibilities. If there's a core library, you know, it's kind of that model that somebody needs to own, uh, one person can focus on that, and then de developers can then focus on the application logic. Once again, your goal is to make it easier to, develop, de to deliver business value. And it has built-in support for sharing with the entire ecosystem. So again, those are things that come by default and not things that you have to reason through. The other area where we have tried to make it easier for people to use Lambda in high-scale systems and building really complex applications is custom runtimes. Who here is happy that we support uh, Ruby now? Enough people, thank you. Uh, but the way we did it was not adding Ruby support or adding uh, Rust support, is to create a custom runtime environment. The, the adding Ruby support was just a manifestation of the runtime work that we did, but it also allows you to bring things like Erlang, which partners can develop, other people can develop. So you essentially now can run arbitrary code on Lambda, and these custom runtimes are distributed as layers. So the layer and runtime parts work in harmony together. So, one of the beauties of Lambda is that it completely allows you to focus on code. But you do have to think about what the architecture would look like. It is a different way of programming your environment, but it takes away operational responsibility and makes it ours. With Fargate, one of the fun parts is you can bring your existing codes. You may have been running an application in a container orchestrator. You can keep doing, you can just take those images and bring them in. 
you can reason about networks very much the way you have been used to, except some of the complexity of managing how you work within the network gets taken away. Uh, and what, it, what we've tried to do over the last few years is make containers a core primitive, much the way people think about VMs. Uh, that means adding VPC as a native networking infrastructure for containers. You get an elastic network interface, you get flow logs, you get all the benefits that a VPC would give you. Uh, metering at the container level. When you're running a container orchestration system, you're still paying for the EC2 side of it. And, there, and now, even though we have added cost allocation, but you're not metering at the container level. With Fargate, that's where you think about it. And that's how you get built. And then you build in things like service discovery. You build in things like, um, I'll talk about uh, service mesh in a bit. Those all get become part of this ecosystem that this containerized bundle lives in. And there's a few other things that we've launched, uh, in case you, you haven't noticed. Uh, we launched secrets management very recently. We're actually planning to do a second rev of secret management support. We one supported SSM. We two will support uh, secrets manager. Uh, we have tagging and cost allocation for those who want to do chargebacks and work in a company. Uh, there's uh, a bunch of other features across the entire uh, container ecosystem that we've added. Uh, I think the big one for me is the deployment part of it and integration into the CDK. Uh, for those of you who don't know what the CDK is, Ken's going to talk a lot more about it. But really what we are working towards is making that operational model much more developer-centric than having to corral infrastructure and think about it in boilerplates of JSON or, or YAML. So you know, we, we've talked about a bunch of features that we are planning to launch. I already talked about uh, secrets management. Uh, we're going to put private link in everything. The goal, again, is make the container a fundamental building block that you can then build on. But because it's integrated with, uh, with orchestration, the overall uh, shared responsibility line still stays mostly in our hands. So one of the challenges, going back to the, one of the questions you asked, is, OK, there's hundreds of services running. We have customers who are running hundreds of services on Fargate, customers like Turner, who run many or many, many of the services with Fargate. How do you monitor them? How do you get control over them? How do you decide which service can talk to what and which service can access what? How do I make my deployment safer when there's this big system? Sure, I've done everything to make sure my service deploys safely, but there could be some impact somewhere else. How do I make sure that that's safe? Historically, the way we did it was when you had fewer services that you built a client library or some kind of code in your application, your that library took care of figuring out what you were allowed to talk to. Your code had to understand that library. What it also meant was you pretty much had to stick to a single language across your entire infrastructure. That's fine when you have a few services. That's fine when you have a few teams. But when you have a large system where you're allowing people to experiment, allowing them to run, allowing them to write in whatever language they want to do, that becomes a challenge. So one of the things that became happened in recent times was decoupling of this operation logic and operational logic and the SDKs. Uh, the way it's implemented is you put a client-side proxy next to your code, typically as a sidecar in container land as a sidecar container, and then your application, your little service, just talks to that proxy, and that proxy is responsible for communicating with everything else in your infrastructure. So again, decoupling makes life easy in this world. This proxy also gives you visibility because it's collecting metrics. And with proxies like Envoy around, you've built in a lot of capabilities to give you that, cap that to give you the control and visibility into your entire infrastructure. There's still one challenge. How do you manage the hundreds of proxies you're now running? 
how do you decide how they get configured over time, and how do you collect data from them? So for us, there's many systems out there. Over the last year or two, more and more people have built control planes to manage this mesh of proxies. For us, it's AppMesh, which was launched uh, yesterday. And in preview, an AWS AppMesh is essentially a control plane for Envoy, where Envoy is the data plane. It allows you to define traffic rules. It allows you to figure out how your traffic is being shaped. Over time, you'll add end-to-end -end authentication and the ability to uh, even configure things like ALBs and API gateways. But in the end, it's a service mesh for all your infrastructure on AWS, whether it's running in a container, whether it's running on EC2, uh, whether it's running on Lambda and being fronted by a, a load balancer or an API gateway. So, but one of the things that we thought about as we did this was the typical model of developing and delivering this was in a cluster. But when your infrastructure spans many, many services, having a cluster bootstrap it again makes you think about how do you run this mesh management within the context of a cluster? How do you control it? How do you scale it? So over time, what and this is something that Werner talked about a lot today, is you pull it back and you build a centralized control plane that can reason, upon, reason about everything that happens. We focus on managing the availability of that system. We focus on taking control of how we secure it, how we evolve it, what kind of features it supports. So uh, hopefully, many of you are going to start using it, playing with the preview. It's up on GitHub, and it'll allow you to corral and get visibility into all this all these little services that you have running around uh, all your applications. The other critical part about it is security. Uh, we want to get fast, we want to be efficient, but we do not want to compromise isolation. So perhaps my, you know, it's, it's something that most customers will never see, but in many ways it's one of the favorite announcements that I've had at this reInvent is Firecracker. For those of you who didn't see the announcement, Firecracker is a little virtual machine monitor the goal of Firecracker is very simple. How do I run lots and lots of little containers and little functions securely without compromising on, uh, how can I run them fast and efficiently without compromising on security? And uh, what it allows us to do is scale Lambda and Fargate and give you the kind of performance that you want. Again, the, in the shared responsibility model, you'll see us do more and more of these things to make sure that you can be comfortable that as you adopt these new paradigms, uh, everything is working really well. So with that, comes the next stage. You've uh, figured out your architecture, you've figured out an operational model, but now you actually have to build the code. So to talk about automating all the things, Ken Exner. Thanks, Deepak. All right. So David walked us through some of the architectural patterns that we see in modern application development. Uh, Deepak uh, took us through some of the operational models. Uh, I'm going to walk us through how we actually develop and build software for, for this new microservices uh, serverless world. I'm going to try to answer the question of, now that you have this new distributed architecture of all these different pieces of functions and microservices and, and managed services, how do you actually develop and, and, and deploy that to production? Uh, four questions I often hear from customers. I'm going to walk through each of these four questions. First is, what's the deployment process look like? How do you release software? Uh, in this new world? And how does Amazon do this? Uh, I manage the process internal to Amazon for how we deploy software, so I'm going to share some secrets about how we do this. Uh, second, um, how do you now monitor and isolate problems in your architecture? Uh, how do you debug things at a system level? Uh, if there are problems uh, in terms of latency or performance in some component of your architecture, how do you find that? 
Uh, the third question I'm going to answer is uh, not just at a systems level, but at a code level. How do you edit and debug code in this new serverless world? Uh, do the same tools work? Are there new tools? What's the edit compile test uh, loop look like? Uh, and then finally, I'm going to talk about how you provision resources and how do, you, how do you model your application and how do you make sure that you're following the best practices as you model your application for this new world. All right, let's start with the release process. Uh, David spent some time talking about monolithic architectures and, and monolithic uh, organizational structures. This is what the uh, process looked like at Amazon 15, 20 years ago. Um, we basically had a bunch of developers bunch of developers working on a monolithic architecture, and then they would throw it over the fence to a manual QA team, a bunch of release engineers, uh, and they would shepherd that out to production and hand it off to operations. Uh, it was a very cumber cumbersome process. It was, at most, we could do one deployment a week uh, because it was very expensive to QA the entire thing, to push this out to production. It was very inefficient. And things started to get better as we decomposed for agility. Things started to get better as we broke apart the monolithic organizational structure and started organizing into two pizza teams. Got a little bit better. Things got a little bit better when we decomposed the monolithic architecture into, there we go, uh, into a bunch of microservices. Um, but we still had this problem. How do you actually release software? Now that you have all these two pizza teams owning their own uh, primitive services, how do you actually push this out to production? How do you manage that release process? We couldn't have thousands of teams trying to do this with a centralized release train model. So what we realized we needed to do is we needed to give these development teams their own tools so that they could release their own software, so that they could own their own release process, and they could shepherd these releases out to production themselves. And this is essentially how, how my team was born at Amazon over 15 years ago. Uh, this is the builder tools team at Amazon. Uh, Andy likes to refer to builders uh, at Amazon. Uh, this was the builder tools team. And we were established to, to give developers, builders, uh, tools that would allow them to manage their own release process. Uh, at first, we were doing a couple things. We, we tried to automate the builds. Uh, CI was very popular at the time. So, you know, trying to automate builds, connecting up the build system with the source control system. At the other end of the spectrum, we were trying to also give developers their own deployment tools so that they could deploy to production without impact to customers. Um, so that was great, but we realized we still had a bunch of stuff in between. We still had a bunch of manual processes that we would take these build artifacts, move them across the different pre-production environments, do a bunch of manual testing. Uh, the deployment process was also fairly complicated and manual, even though we had these deployment tools, because you had to deploy across different AZs and different regions. And all of this was manual. So in traditional Amazon fashion, we looked at this and said, that's the production line that needs to be automated. So we set out to automate the entire process end to end, from source code check-in to the final deployment. Uh, and we started building a tool called Pipelines internally. This is over a decade ago. And Pipelines was this, this tool that allowed us to go from source code check-in to having everything deployed in production completely automated. A person wouldn't, wouldn't touch it or inspect anything anywhere in the pipeline. Uh, and this is how we started getting into continuous deployment at Amazon. Uh, now, at first, people were a little bit nervous. It was kind of crazy that you would have this, this, this system that would deploy to production, and no one would check anything. No one would test anything. It would just flow out to production. But what we started to realize is that anything that a person could do, 
anything that a person could check or manually, manually inspect or manually test, anything they could do could be put into automation. And if we did that, we could do the same automation and the same testing every single time, no matter how small the change was. And that anything that someone could manually verify should be put into a script or into an automated test. So we started building up uh, a bunch of uh, you know, tests, integration tests, a bunch of API smoke tests. Every team started having their battery of tests that would run against their pipelines every single time. Then we started getting into more sophisticated types of testing, started doing automated load testing, started doing synthetic monitoring, not only against production, but synthetic monitoring against pre-production. Uh, started doing security scans. Along the way, we started to realize that there are actually good patterns and good practices for how to set up a pipeline. And we wanted to make sure that the developers were following the best practices. So we did a couple things. The first thing is we set up templates for how to set up a pipeline gave the developers at Amazon templates for what a best practice pipeline should look like. That, you know, that define not only the contents of that pipeline, but also the shape of it and the structure. It, it, should, have, um, it should have connections to monitoring so that you can you know, set up an automatic rollback. Uh, you should, you know, develop, you should uh, flow it out to different regions in a progressive way, fan out slowly. All these things were defined in these pipelines, in these pipeline templates. Um, the second thing that happened, which was pretty impactful for Amazon, is that we realized that we could actually inspect these pipelines. And if we could inspect the pipelines, we could determine whether or not they were following the best practices. We could, we could define best practices uh, as, as a policy and run that policy against these pipelines. And if the pipelines weren't following the policy for that business, we could block the pipeline. We could stop the deployment. And this was a revelation for us that we could use this, this type of technology to ensure that Amazon developers were all following the best practices for their particular business. That we could achieve governance and compliance for all these two pizza teams that were, all had a sense of agency. We could control that and make sure they were following best practices through standardized tools. Um, so whenever I, I talk about this uh, for, to customers, they always invariably ask me, how can we do the same thing? Uh, does Amazon have any tools that we can use that allow us to you know, achieve the same type, types of, uh, uh, of, of processes that Amazon follows? Uh, and the good news is that uh, a couple years ago, we started externalizing many of these tools uh, as the AWS developer tools. Uh, we have code, uh, code commit, which is private Git repositories, uh, fully encrypted. Uh, we have code build for building uh, and testing your software. We have AWS code deploy uh, to do the deployment. And we have AWS code pipeline to, to manage the entire release process. Um, when we first launched these, uh, we were mostly focused on EC2 instances and instance-based workloads. Uh, and customers started asking us, how about ECS and Fargate and uh, Lambda? Uh, our internal customers started asking us the same thing, because they wanted to use the same tools regardless of what compute environment they were deploying to, which made a lot of sense. You know, whether you're deploying to an instance uh, or a function or a container, you shouldn't have to change your tools. So we started building capabilities that would enable us to use the same tools to deploy to ECS uh, and Fargate and Lambda. Uh, this year, I'm happy to announce that we've added support for ECR as a source action in Code Pipeline. Uh, and we've added support for blue-green deployment to Fargate and ECS with code deploy, so that you can use, you can use traffic shifting or blue-green style deployments uh, with container-based uh, services at AWS. Uh, we're going to continue to do a bunch of cool things in this area, especially focused on serverless and, and containers. So there's a lot more to come. 
Um, one, one feature that I thought was super cool that launched earlier in this year that I'll call out uh, was that we added support for config rules for code pipeline. And why this is cool is that it means that you can set up a policy in config rules, uh, AWS config, that governs the structure and contents of your pipeline, which means that you can achieve some of the same compliance and governance that Amazon does. You can define policies for pipelines that allow you to control uh, the shape and, and contents of a pipeline. The second question I said I would answer is, now that you have this distributed architecture of all these containers and functions and managed services, how do you isolate uh, and discover problems in that architecture? Um, if you know, Maybe you have uh, some errors being thrown or some performance issues. How do you figure out where in that distributed architecture the problem is? Uh, at Amazon, we've been using distributed tracing technologies to solve this problem internally. With distributed tracing, you can follow the entire request path all the way down into the you know, different layers of your application, the different components, to the data tier and back up. Uh, and you can figure out where the problems are. A couple of years ago, we launched X-Ray uh, as an externalization of some of the tools that we've been using inside of Amazon. Uh, and what X-Ray does is it allows you to analyze and debug issues quickly, end to end, through, through the entire call path uh, of, of your application, through every, every single component of your distributed architecture. Uh, there's a couple of new features I'm going to call out that I think are super cool. One is we launched uh, X-Ray root causes yesterday. And what this allows you to do is uh, do custom alarms based on filter expressions in X-Ray that you can use to, to identify an alarm on whatever, whatever um, custom thing you want to alarm on uh, for your distributed application. You can use filter expressions to create these, uh, very granular types of, of monitoring. Um, the, the, third, the, four, um, the other thing that we launched uh, support for uh, a couple of weeks ago is API Gateway. We're starting to add support for a number of new services in AWS, uh, but support for API Gateway was super important so that we could support serverless. So we now support Lambda and API Gateway, and if you're using API Gateway, you get X-Ray by default. All right, so that's how you monitor and debug things at a system level. How about at a code level? How, what's the edit, compile, test loop look like for, uh, for editing and, and debugging code? Uh, last year at reInvent, we announced AWS Cloud9. Uh, and Cloud9 is a, is a, is a cloud-based, browser-based IDE that allows you to develop completely in the cloud. Uh, it, it supports serverless really well, so if you're building a serverless application, I highly recommend using Cloud9. You can do uh, debugging through Cloud9. You can manage uh, a serverless application. Uh, there's a lot of great things to be coming uh, out soon for Cloud9, so, so stay tuned. Um, but this morning, in Werner's keynote, we also announced support for three new AWS toolkits. Uh, and the reason is because we want to meet developers where they are. We've heard from developers that you know, IDEs, IDEs are a very personal thing, and, and everyone has their favorite IDE, so we want to make sure that we're meeting you where you are. So if you're a developer of IntelliJ, VS Code, or PyCharm, uh, we now have toolkits that allow you to do serverless app development using these IDEs. Um, these are being developed completely in open source, uh, so you can go to GitHub, give us feedback, contribute code if you want to, um, and, and give, us, uh, give us some ideas of what you'd like to see next. Initially, we're focused a lot on the serverless experience, uh, but we're going to be adding support for other use cases as well. Um, the PyCharm, uh, there we go. The PyCharm uh, 
plugin allows you to create uh, a Lambda or serverless application, uh, a new project. It allows you to do local step-through debugging uh, in your IDE and deploy your application straight from, uh, from, straight from PyCharm, which is one of the JetBrain projects. Um, super cool. So check it out and give us feedback. Uh, the fourth and final question I wanted to answer for you is, uh, how do you model your application? How do you provision the resources? You have a lot of you know, different pieces now. Uh, when things were in, all in one server or one EC2 instance, you might have provisioned that using uh, a web GUI or a CLI. But as you have more and more pieces uh, to your distributed application, uh, things get a little bit more complicated, so you need a new way to do this. And that's where infrastructure as code comes in. Uh, there's a ton of reasons to do infrastructure as code. Uh, not only does it help you define the desired state for your application and, and something that you can reason about in code, but it's also something that you can revision control, that you can inspect uh, and, and look at your architecture in, in, in time. It's something you can code review. There's a ton of reasons to do it. Um, but one of the pieces of feedback that we always get from developers is that it's still a little bit hard. It's still a very low level. Uh, you're dealing with lots of JSON or YAML code that tends to um, be fairly low level and mapped to service APIs one-to-one. Uh, -one. So it exposes all the configuration options. Uh, a good example is if you're trying to set up a VPC, there are so many configuration options for a VPC that you end up with thousands of lines of JSON code just to set up a VPC using CloudFormation or Terraform. Um, so what developers want is they want a more abstracted, more opinion, opinionated way to set up AWS and infrastructure as code. Um, and preferably to be able to do it in whatever languages they want, and not just in HCL or, or YAML or JSON. Um, so we've been working on a new project called the AWS Cloud Development Kit, uh, or CDK. Um, and what the CDK does, I, I, there's two things I want you to remember. The first thing uh, is that it provides language bindings for CloudFormation so that you can author CloudFormation templates in imperative languages. So you can author CloudFormation in Java, uh, or TypeScript, uh, or C-sharp, or Python, and then it compiles down to CloudFormation. So it allows you to do whatever you want to do in, in whatever imperative language you want. We have more languages coming, uh, but you can take advantage of inheritance, and, and loops, and if statements, and all the other things that you would normally do in a regular imperative language. Um, the second thing I want you to know about is that it has a higher level um, set of components. We, you know, not just the low language, uh, not just the low level bindings, but also a bunch of higher level components that we call constructs. And what these constructs do is they provide opinionated patterns for how to implement things. Uh, sometimes this might be a, a, single, a single service implementation, like a VPC. So rather than the thousands of lines of, of, uh, cloud, of CloudFormation JSON or HCL and Terraform, you'd simply have a few snippets of code uh, in TypeScript or Java for how to implement a VPC in the best practice, in, in the co most common way. You can still you know, configure it however you want, but it gives you a default best practice way to do it. Or we would have constructs for um, implementing com common patterns across services. Uh, maybe you want to implement uh, a PubSub pattern using uh, SQS and SNS. We have a construct that does that. Uh, so super cool stuff that I'm excited about. Uh, it's being developed in open source as well. Uh, check it out on GitHub. Um, related to this is SAM, uh, the AWS serverless model, which is a sister, a sister project that allows you to do some of the same things. It's higher level opinionated uh, 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 ways to implement uh, infrastructure as code, but in a declarative format. 
So if you, if you like using a declarative format, SAM is, is a perfect solution for that. It allows you to have opinionated ways to model your application. Um, and as Deepak mentioned, uh, we now have uh, container constructs for the CDK as well. Uh, and this is super cool because it allows you to have opinionated ways uh, to model a container-based application using Fargate or ECS. Uh, and it not only generates all the cloud formation that you need, it generates the IAM policies and all the other configuration files you need for Docker and for builds and everything else. All of it is managed by these constructs. Uh, all right, and with that, we've come to the conclusion. Uh, I want to finish by saying that uh, here at AWS, we are building a, a platform, a cloud, uh, that best supports your modern application needs, and we're innovating across the entire stack. Uh, from the hypervisor layer to the application construction layer and everything in between. Uh, I want to thank you for coming. Uh, we are at the top of the hour, so we're not going to have time for questions here. Uh, but David, uh, Deepak, and I uh, will stick around in the lobby afterwards for 15, 20 minutes. If you have questions, please come up to us, and we're happy to answer anything. Uh, you also uh, can give us feedback using the mobile app. Uh, please take time to give us some, some feedback. Thank you for coming. Uh, and enjoy the rest of the day.